0: the area and a safe return home for Ben and all the soldiers in the area we ask all this according to your great working and your mercy amen all right so we are um, in Isaiah 45 starting at verse 15 just a recap from last time this was God saying that he's hidden And yet we see how he's made himself known throughout history, both in the revelation of his his created power in this world, but also he's made his word known. So God's constantly made himself found by those who seek him and that he reveals himself, invites us through his gospel and his word. We're going to review now. It's the top of page 30 on the study guide. There are at least six sections since we started in chapter 40 which focus on the Lord alone as the one and only true God. So I listed those occurrences there. Isaiah 40, 25, 41, 29, 42, verse 8, 43, verse 11, 44, verse 6, and 45, verse 20. It just seems to be a reoccurring theme, doesn't it? God keeps saying, I alone am God. There is no other, not one. Why did God need to stress this for ancient Israel in Isaiah's time? Yeah, sure. Yeah. The people had a short memory. They were stiff necked and thought, even despite you know all the evidence to the contrary, that the, the false gods would somehow save them. Yeah.
1: Well, it's just, you know, look, even in Jesus' time, everything that he did, and they still rejected it. All his miracles.
0: Right. So just the, the hardness of the heart calls for repetition. But think of the context and culture of ancient Israel at this time. Was it, was it taken for granted that the Lord alone is God? They make
2: all kinds of idols and things, so he had to remind them all
0: the time. Right, sometimes it was a syncretism where they, they said, this is the Lord, and they kind of, you know, adopted the practices of the Canaanite gods and kind of created a credit that was both worshiping of the Lord and Baal. You've got the, the altar that was put up at Bethel. It was a golden calf that was structured, but they said they were worshiping the Lord there. Were they really worshiping the Lord? So they were distorting who the Lord was, but they were also worshiping so many other gods. Now, if you look at the world today, why is that still important to stress that the Lord alone is God? You don't see people you know, setting up golden calves or worshiping Baal. Yeah, they worship all other
2: kinds of things. things.
0: Yeah, people worship all other kinds of things. Donkeys and elephants. <laughs> right? So maybe a political, political stance? That's a book right there. And when we talk about worship, it's not just where you look to for your source of joy. It's also where do you put your hope and where do you, where do you put all your chips? You say, this is, this is what will fix everything. You know, don't put your trust in princes. Um, there's a lot of
2: devil worship.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of not just syncretism or distortion of the Lord, there's defiance, where people are turning to witchcraft, and there's a sort of a revival of pagan ritual and and worship with witchcraft. Um, I think it was a couple years ago I first heard that that's one of the fastest growing so-called religious beliefs in the military, in the armed service, that people are turning to that, and it's probably... Evident as you look around in our community, there are more people that are openly saying, yeah, I'm, I'm following witchcraft or sorcery. Yeah. So don't think that because we're so civilized or far away from ancient Israel that we don't need to hear and emphasize that same truth, that there's only one God. Something that's offensive to so many world religions, especially, especially religions like Hinduism. But even Christians will be like, well, there's many paths no, there's, there's one God, and him alone. And there's also the ecumenical movement and universalism that's found in the Christian churches as well. No other way, no other theology, no other word gives forgiveness in life. Let's uh, review the idea of a hidden God by turning to John 1.18. And we'll discuss how the hidden God made himself fully known. Someone have that verse, John 1.18? Because we we saw in this section of Isaiah, God said, Isaiah said, truly, you are a God who hides himself. You got it? No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is of the Father's side, has made him known. Yeah, that, that first part, no one has ever seen God. That's what Isaiah said. You are a God who hides himself. And yet, how has the unseen, hidden God made himself fully known? He's everywhere. <laughs> Think about it. Sure, I mean, he, he's made himself known in the power of his creation, definitely. So we call that the natural knowledge of God. But he's made himself known even further than that, than just the natural knowledge. His words. His words, so the prophets made him known. The writer to the Hebrews says, in the past God spoke to us through the prophets at various times in many ways. God revealing himself, his plans, his characteristics. But then John comes to this. How has the hidden God become known? Jesus
2: Christ.
0: Yeah, the only begotten Son who is at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus came to reveal the Father, to reveal God to us as the true eternal Son of God. When you look at Jesus, you see the hidden God in the flesh.
1: That's why he's called
0: the Word. The Word?
1: That's why Jesus is God refers to Jesus as the Word. Yeah, John speaking as
0: God. John refers to Christ as the Word, made flesh. The Word became flesh, he says. Yep. So when Jesus speaks, he's speaking the Word of God. When you see his characteristics, his attitudes, his actions, he's revealing the heart of God because he is true God. The incarnation fully reveals the hidden God when we see how he's both just and merciful on the cross, right? So much is made known. And Jesus had to say to his disciples, you've known me all this time and you say show us the Father, don't you know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's not saying he is the Father, but he and the Father are one. And when you see the word in the flesh, you see true God and the same thing that you see in Christ will be seen of the Father. Okay, what is meant by natural knowledge of God and revealed knowledge of God? What's the, the, the scope of each? What do they show us? Your conscience. Yeah, natural knowledge. Jerry mentioned one, so the things around us, this created world, there is a powerful God. But there's more to the natural knowledge of God. Everybody has a conscience. What does that tell us about God? His well written in our hearts. So when you do wrong, your conscience tells you about the hidden God. I don't see him, but I know there's a sense of right and wrong. I know that to do wrong means you should be punished for wrong. So your natural knowledge, your your conscience can tell you there is a God, not only who is powerful and created all, but who hates sin, who desires that sin be paid for and wants to deal with the problem of sin. And it terrifies the sinner. So that, that's really the limit, though, of the natural knowledge, isn't it? The natural knowledge can only reveal that much about God. He's wise, powerful, and just. What do we mean by the revealed knowledge of God? It's seen through his Son. It's seen through the prophets. Yeah, any, anything we find in the Word, Right. So that would mean both law and gospel. We see the details of creation. We see exactly how far the law goes and what we deserve because we've broken the law and exactly what way we've broken the law. So I guess you could say the the revealed knowledge fixes where the limitations of a clouded conscience can't quite recognize the law. What else do we find in the natural knowledge? I mean, sorry, the revealed knowledge. This divine revelation, this divine, (coughs) divine truth written down. something you can only find in the revealed knowledge. So what good is it if God says, okay, you've got your conscience, and you know I'm wise and powerful and just, I'm going to give you my revealed words, you know exactly how just I am, and just exactly what is sin and what is right and good. We know a little bit more about God, but we're missing something. Yeah. What's what's this just God going to do with us? He's got so many plans for each of us. Right. We do know in the revealed knowledge his plan is to punish every sinner, to hold us accountable for sin. Looking
1: back at 315, Genesis 315, So he first revealed
0: his plan. Right. The first spoken, revealed thing after the fall of the sin was the, the knowledge that God would crush the devil and that a man would be born. That's revealed knowledge. Adam and Eve never would have thought, oh, an offspring is going to come, a a human being born of Eve who will crush the serpent. They never would have guessed that. But God revealed it, and he revealed more and more good news regarding that that serpent crusher, right? We need the revealed knowledge of God to know this hidden truth. Uh, Sometimes like the Apostle Paul calls it a mystery, the mystery of the gospel. It's not a mystery anymore, but it would have been a mystery forever if God didn't tell us. He plans to save us, right? He saved us through his son. He's got a plan to bring us to be with him in his kingdom. So, yes, he's a God who hides himself, but in his word we have law and gospel. We would never have any gospel, really. Not much gospel at all without the revealed knowledge. Explain how you might use both the natural and revealed knowledge when you're trying to make the hidden God known to someone for the first time. So you are a God who hides himself. How do you make that hidden God known to somebody in this world using both natural knowledge and revealed knowledge? But pointing out the natural first, stuff that they can actually see. Sometimes you can start there, yeah. Yeah,
1: To me, that would seem like the obvious place to start because that's something that they're used to. They see it all the time. Probably more than they've ever seen the revealed knowledge of God. Then you take that natural knowledge of God and you go into the revealed knowledge that, that this is how it came about when God said,
0: "Right, we see His word.
1: His word is everything. That's why we have the word."
0: Yeah, you can start with that. Say, so we see there's a powerful Creator. He tells you what He did to bring everything about.
2: But if they believe in evolution, how do you explain that you believe that God created this? I mean. You have no proof of that either, so how do you kind of get through to them?
0: Yeah, if a person believes in evolution and you're trying to use the natural knowledge of God, there you kind of see the limits too. It's by faith we understand this world is made at God's command. So one, actually, the natural knowledge of God doesn't take as much faith. In fact, the psalmist says a fool says there's no God. You've got that in your heart. You've had it your whole life. But the natural knowledge of God or the revealed knowledge of God takes faith. So and
1: that's the work of the Spirit. And there you have to
0: rely on God's working. Yep. Yeah, you can only
1: start by pointing up well look at all the natural stuff, and now here's what God reveals. Take it or leave it.
0: <laughs> Someone might go against the better knowledge of that natural knowledge of God. say, Yeah, I don't see the hidden God. I know sin is bad, but I'm not so bad. And then you hit them with the revealed knowledge, you're condemned. He tells you that you're his enemy and you're punished. But he also tells me that he's paid the price. So, the, the revealed knowledge is only something that we can believe by the working of the Spirit. Yeah, good point. Martha, you had a comment or go here? But I was saying everybody has a conscience. So, everybody. Some people have hardened their conscience, but you're right, everyone has a conscience. So, you can start with that. Don't, do you feel that you can stand before the Creator someday and that He'll praise you for what you've done in your life? that you've been faithful, that you've been true, or do you think there's some things he's gonna have to hold you to account for? So you can use that, that conscience to help people realize there's something not right. You know?
2: Everybody has a conscience, and you know, you, you know everybody at some point in time has realized they're a sinner, whether they want to admit it or not.
0: Right. Uh, and you can actually take them to that, that, that revealed truth that's seen in this world in the natural knowledge. If God is so pleased with you, why are you going to die someday? Why do people die? Why do babies die? This is only answered as we find out we're sinful from birth and we are, have sinned against him and deserve his wrath. Yep. So you can use both. Um, just wanted to make that point that both are actually used by Scripture. The Apostle Paul, when he's witnessing, he kind of appeals to both of them. Uh, but ultimately, you have to leave them to, by faith, understand the revealed knowledge of the gospel. Um, How about this Evaluate Martin Luther's statement All creatures are merely veils Under which God hides himself And deals with us What do you think of Martin Luther's statement All creatures are merely veils Under which God hides himself And deals with us
2: Well it's true in the sense That he made all creatures Sure
0: And then
2: You know by looking at them You understand that There must have been
0: a creator Certainly when you look at Even, I think you could take the all creatures, the marvels of creation. There's a wise God who put all this together. That's how he shows himself, through his creation. You could even take that further, right? When a person comes to another person with the gospel, they don't see God face to face, but they encounter God through that person and his word, don't they? So when when the Holy Spirit works on a heart, The person only sees a human face speaking to them. But that's a veil for the Lord is actually speaking through his messenger that he sent and with his word. So I think Luther's correct. What did you say?
2: Pastor, I have a note in my Bible. Can I read it? Sure. It says, while God hid himself in the sense that he is far above creation, he pursues relationship." with and makes himself known to his creatures.
0: Right. We see that in Isaiah. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. He uh, wants that relationship. And how does he make that relationship with us when he's hidden and, and so far above and separate from sinners? He comes to us through his word. And we hear that in his word, that he loves us.
1: And that's good. So, you know, every time I hear, like, you just said it through his word. After reading
0: John, you know, the opening statements of the Gospel of John, I always think he reveals it to us not just in his
1: written word, but in his reveal, his son.
0: Who we know reveals through the word, yeah. Yeah,
1: you know, it's like, so it has a double meaning to me.
0: This should this should all come together to, to a head as we realize how important it is for us to share the Gospel. There are people who are lost, people who who know there is... Their conscience, they know there's right and wrong. They know and fear death and dread to stand before a holy God. But we have the privilege, you should say, of being that person that reveals God to them. Say, let, let me tell you about what God says. God says this. He sent his one and only son that whoever believes will not perish. Now, you are that person that's opening up that revealed knowledge of the hidden God. He wants to make himself known to this world through Through you and through the people that you support, missionaries, teachers, parents, all those who speak the word of God are are that veil that God chooses to deal with his his people and with sinners. Okay, uh, let's review the chapter now. So take a look at the whole chapter before we close it out. At the start of this chapter, Isaiah 45, Cyrus is called the Lord's anointed and yet people would question why God would choose to use an unbelieving king like Cyrus, the anointed one, to set, aside, to set the exiles free and to restore Jerusalem. How might you use this prophecy about Cyrus, as he's called the anointed, to help someone who's questioning if God is really working everything for their good? Did Cyrus come
1: and conquer the Babylonians, set the exile, and let them go back, and then help them rebuild?
0: He did it. Well, isn't that for
1: their good?
0: Yeah, God used him. Even though he was an unbeliever, it says he did not acknowledge the Lord, he used him to accomplish his purpose. If God can use unbelieving rulers to change the world and to overthrow giant empires like Babylon just to accomplish his purpose for his people, isn't that encouraging? If you're wondering if God is working everything for your good, even unbelievers, end up carrying out his good plans for his people.
2: And Pastor, in those first seven verses, God says, I will, I will, I call, I am, I am, I form, I make, I right. am. So, you know, he, Cyrus is definitely just a tool. God.
0: That's a good description. Cyrus is a, a tool. God says, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. So, If you're questioning if God's really working everything for their good, just remember God's the one who does and accomplishes his purpose. He speaks, he fulfills. And yeah, he'll use different people to accomplish different purposes. Uh, God directed world affairs for Cyrus and for the sake of his people. Discuss how much we can apply to his working in other countries. Now we have a lot of uncertainty in the world with escalation of war potentially on the horizon. Although we have no specific promise that God gave George Washington and the United States that was newly formed success, what can we say about those events and specific things about today's events? You know, God didn't appear in a vision and say, I'm going to bring you know, today's events to a, a safe conclusion. Nor did he appear to George Washington and say, you're going to be for me the captain who will accomplish my purposes.
1: Well, then you just have to wonder, there's no authority not established by God. What was he trying to accomplish
0: through Hitler? Annihilation of so many Jews. Every authority that exists has been established by God.
1: Yeah.
0: That's a mind-boggling thought when you consider, yeah, like, consider some of the, not just the Nazis, but many regimes throughout history have been just terrible, and they've done awful things. But couldn't you say the same thing about the Babylonians who tortured the Israelites? You know, they, the Assyrians who came before them, who tortured the northern kingdom and led them into exile, gouged out the eyes of their kings and just horrible fates that they faced.
1: Was it, and this was what God would call a refinement?
0: Yeah, we're going to get to that, especially when we get to uh, chapter uh, 48. He's going to say, when all this happened, I was refining you, even though you faced these hardships. Um, bad things that come in our life, God's not responsible for the evil, but he'll still use what comes to accomplish his purpose on the world stage and in our personal life. So we have no specific promise that God's going to use terrible rulers to accomplish his purpose, but we can still trust. In the end, it's not going to stop God's plan or in, in, in his will for this world. You know, it's, it's a sad truth. The the people that the Nazis killed they were gonna eventually die. Well, they, they met an untimely death with a, a horrible outcome that their life, that they were either enslaved in a labor camp or torn away from their family, just horrible fates, but they were gonna die nonetheless. Uh, God, in his wisdom, decided that this is what is allowed to take place so others might take to heart uh, my word and turn to me. So I'm not saying those events were good, just as I wouldn't say the, the crucifixion of Jesus was a good thing in itself, but God takes evil and accomplishes his plans despite the evil. Okay, other thoughts on that? So I didn't have much to review for chapter 45. We're going to move into, I think we've got time today to get into chapter 46, at least the first part. So chapter 46. Idols must be carried, but the Lord carries out his plan. I'm trying to see the clock. There's just too much of a glare.
1: It doesn't work. The battery dead.
0: Well, don't want to go off of that one then. We're minute too fast now. Okay, so we got time. Yeah, if I go off of that clock, class will never end. We got six more pages I got prepared, so here we go. Isaiah forty-six. Uh, have you ever been backcountry hiking, carrying all your supplies on your back? Anybody ever do that?
1: Mm-hmm. Gotta have my RV. So you got your
0: pack it into your RV, it's much easier, isn't it? Imagine some of you, uh, three or four of you raised your hand. A lot of backcountry hikers have adopted a practice called ultra-light hiking. They count even every ounce of weight that they carry. So picture, you know, you're taking 10,000 steps in a day or whatever, or however many steps you take, just, you've got to carry that extra ounce, 10,000 or whatever more steps. People consider you an ultra-light backpack if the base weight of your pack, that's Your pack weight minus the water and the things you eat is under 10 pounds. To get under 10 pounds, people are so extreme they limit every ounce. Yet even ultralight backpackers will sometimes put up with the weight if it's something they don't want to part with. Maybe, for example, some will bring like a one-pound chair, a favorite camera, or a luxury item. But they will only bring extra weight if it's useful and important to them. What would be the first thing you'd be willing to get rid of to shed weight off your pack? So if you had to carry all your life's essentials in your pack, what would be the first thing you'd be willing to get rid of?
1: Just eat eat a lot of food at the beginning.
0: Okay, you, you can go without food for a while. Obviously, if you're carrying a lot of weight and moving about all day, you get hungry, but you can actually live many days without food if you have to. God points out that idols are useless burdens, and we really carry nothing. The Lord promises to carry his people, even if they don't deserve it. Uh, it's a sad truth, but the people were unwilling to get rid of the weight that they were carrying with their idols. Even as they're, they're forced to be you know, pressured and facing armies, they didn't want to let go of the weight that they carried. And here's God saying, don't carry them. I'll, I'll carry you. All right, let's read verse 1 to 4 of chapter 46. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops low. Their idols are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born. Even to your old age and grey hairs, I am He. I am He who will sustain you. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will sustain you and will rescue you. So note the play on words for who is a burden and who carries a burden. So who's the burden? Sure? The idols. Really, it's the he's getting down to the idols are a burden the people here he talks about the beasts of burden have to cart them about and drag them along and the people too are burdened by their idols he'll get to that more later in the chapter you know they have to appease their idols and carry their burden and the people themselves end up carrying them along with the the beasts of burdens what does god say he will do for israel
2: he will sustain
0: them he will sustain he And not make them carry him, but he will carry them. And he actually did that for them, right? Notice he says, I have carried you since you were born. You know, since the nation of Israel became a nation of people, he carried them out of Egypt. And that's actually the the way he described uh, the rescue he brought about for them. And he says, I will carry you. So not only did he carry them up to this point since they existed as a nation, he says, I'm going to continue to carry you. So... God's giving the promise that he will still be with the people just like he promised. Uh, Israel had been ransacked by Assyria, would be ransacked now by the Babylonians. The promise is that God would bring them back out of Israel and they would find a future and joy as they trusted in him. Because these are the the Babylonian gods. Bel is the god of Babylonia. Uh, Bel, you can see his name in Nebuchadnezzar. His name is there. He's a kind of a, the god that they would have considered carted them off to exile too, that conquered them. All right. So when hard times come in our life, what comfort does this section give us? Thinking of especially of verse three and four there. I, could I just read something in my Bible? Yeah, I've please share. Heard?
2: Yep. It kind of pertains to us, too. It says, I will be the same until your old age, and I will bear you up when you turn gray. That ought to apply to a lot of us right here.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'll be the same to your old age and bear you up even when your hairs turn gray. That even as you are unable to carry as much as you did in your youth, God says, still, I'll be with you. Yep. Even as our strength diminishes, God's strength doesn't. Good. So what comfort does this section give you when you face hard times? God's
1: always there, right? behind,
0: right with you. Right. I think we should be able to apply this as we know, just as God carried the nation of Israel and was with them in love, he carries us. Uh, he tells us he's with us. So he says to Israel, I carried you. Didn't he carry you to this point? Can you take credit for how you've been brought to this point in your life, or rather, with the faith that you have and the hope and the promises you hold, didn't God carry you to this point? Yeah, we may be carted off to exile like Israel would be. Uh, Maybe not exactly like that, but we know whatever we face, God's going to carry us through life's troubles. Um, You can take these words and hold on to them for yourself, appropriate them to your life. He says, I will carry you, I will sustain you, I will rescue you. The Apostle Paul said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Paul didn't say, I'm going to make it to his heavenly kingdom. He said, he's going to bring me to his heavenly kingdom. Ultimately, won't it be like that picture of uh, the poor Lazarus who was, says he was carried by, the angels carried him to Abraham's side, the place of rest in God's house. That's where that, that hymn comes, angel band. Come or come, angel band. Come round me, stand, and carry me away. Yeah. Verses 1 through 4, <clears throat> compare that with what Jesus says about burdens. So here he's saying, the images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So can we discuss what Jesus' hearers were weary and burdened from? And what it means to take Jesus' burden on yourself? What was wearying Jesus' hearers? Us. Was it? Us. 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 Or his biggest
1: burden. No, not Jesus'. No, that's
0: hearers. Yeah, if you you talking about who wearies Jesus, you know, God is wearied by our sins. And I think we saw it in the last chapter, right? Where it says, You've wearied me with your offenses. But Jesus is hearers. He's saying to them, Come to me, you who are weary and burdened. What was what was making them feel weary and burdened? Well, the the traditions that the leaders were put on. Plus the Romans. Okay, you got the Roman occupation. Yeah, I'm thinking more of the spiritual burdens. Yoke, the
1: yoke that the, the Jewish leaders were putting on. Yeah. The man-made laws.
0: Yeah, so they're feeling weary, weary and burdened by the spiritual teachings of the time, which was, this is how many steps you can take on a Sabbath. If you really want to be considered holy, you have to make this many, you know, pilgrimages, prayers, whatever it might be. Work righteousness was wearying the people. Um, basically, you know, getting getting to Grace's point, we weary God. They were saying, "Don't be a burden to God. Carry God's burdens, and you can serve Him, and then you'll, then then He'll bless you." Right? They were they were flipping it around that we're supposed to carry this heavy load, and then then comes along Jesus, "Come to Me, you who are weary and burdened, and take My yoke." Well, how do we do that? What does it mean to take Jesus' burden? And how do we come to Him and take His burden?
1: Because. Or
0: cross and sure, he's, he's going to say close within this context that being a disciple means bearing a cross. So there, there is a weight, but why does he say that that is light? The burden of Christ is light. Because
1: he's carrying us through
0: life. Yeah, he's I'll the one. To Isaiah. He's doing it. Going back to yeah, Isaiah's prophecy, God says, I will carry you, and Jesus says, come to me, I'll, I'll give you rest. And that rest is the the rest from all the spiritual weight of am I right with God, trying to do it yourself. Uh, The burden of trying to appease either these false idols or trying to appease the, the wrong depiction that God requires and demands, or rather needs, us to work our way to salvation. He knows we cannot. He sees that we are condemned, so he has a plan to rescue us. And himself carries, literally carries that cross. So when we pick up our crosses, it's light in comparison to that crushing weight of hell and sin that used to be on our shoulders. Now the weight that we bear is not crushing. It's rather a joy to follow Christ as we take up our burden. And with a new heart of faith and thankfulness, you know, we're not operating on fear. We're not you know, bearing any burden Oh, I better make my God happy or else. No, it's, he already has declared he's forgiven and loves me. So it's done with a willing and cheerful heart. And that really sets us free and makes our burden light too. So we serve God with a cheerful, willing heart, a new spirit of faith, not out of fear and a heavy burden of sin. Yeah, and Jesus says, come to me. We're going to see that come up in Isaiah's prophecy too. Uh, hear God saying, I will carry you, I will rescue you. Well, let's read verses five and six. Are there any questions up to this point? Verse four? Comments? Okay, verse five. With whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me, that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god. They bow down and worship it. So here he started to picture one of the burdens of idols as they demand money. If you want to, um, even today, you know, get a fortune told or you want someone to perform some sort of incantation for you, they want money. If you go to a, a, a psychic, they want money. Anywhere people put their, their false idols, they're a burden because they're going to take whatever resource they can suck you out, out of you and take it away from you and demand more from you. So people will empty their pockets for idols. How is this done in the world around you?
1: Uh, the lottery. That'll empty your pocket quick.
0: Sure. Or the casino. There are people who, who can barely afford to pay their rent, and yet they're, they're buying a lottery ticket every day. And they've probably spent more on their lottery ticket throughout their life than they've invested in any savings account.
1: I remember when the first casino, when it first opened, it was like just a modular trailer, okay, a bunch of slot machines. So just out of curiosity, Grace and I went over there one night, and she goes, "See that lady over there? Her kids are on the free lunch program. See that one <laughs> and this one and that one. The kids are going hungry, but yet." They're
0: in Right. Yeah, that's a sad reality. Yeah. That often those who are most tempted by that quick, rich scheme are those who are the most desperate, sometimes because it makes them desperate and sometimes because of their desperation. Yeah. So all, all sorts of places. You can go to the casino and you can look at the way people empty their pockets for the, the false idol of worshiping wealth and their greed. Um, so that's one way it's done in our world. There's secret idolatry, too. Think about how much money people spend on sports to travel to sporting events, to have you know, involvement in sports, their hobbies, their entertainment. How much money do people empty their pockets for and say, oh, if I can just empty my pockets for this entertainment, this hobby, this sporting thing, then I'll be happy. And it just demands so much from them. Um, from the People's Bible Commentary, I found a, a neat a phrase here. Luther suggests that superstition is the mistress of money, and that while many are all too willing to pay for the expensive idols, Christ and the gospel go poor. So Luther was seen in his time, this is 500 years ago, the same irony that Isaiah seen. As Isaiah says, They pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver from their scales and hire a goldsmith to make it to a god. So, people are emptying their pockets to make an idol. And Luther observes in his time, 500 years ago, people are really quick for superstition to empty their money. And what about today? The same thing is going on with the human heart, chasing after its own desires, is quick to empty its pockets. And unfortunately, we see slow to honor the Lord. Yeah. And you know, Christ doesn't demand. Today, we're under freedom that we give a certain amount but we're now his burden is light we get to cheerfully support the spread of the gospel not because we're under a curse or a requirement but because he set us free to serve him okay other thoughts in verses five and six we see some of the burden so some of the burden that made idol worship miserable was they demand money how about we read on verse six and eight so I've read six already, but it ties in together with eight, so. Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god, and they bow down and worship it. They lift it, the idol they paid for and made, to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place, and there it stands. From that spot, it cannot move. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. Remember this. Keep it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. So, so far we've seen some things that make idol worship miserable. Let's review some of those things. Uh, I've listed for you, there have been one, two, three, four times that idol worship has come up. Isaiah 40.19, Isaiah 41.7, 41.21, and forty four nine and following. Let's review the four times previous that he mentioned idol worship. And let's see if we can come up with a list now that makes idol worship just miserable. So, what do we see in 40 verses 19 and 20? A truth about idol worship that makes it a, a pitiful thing. A metal worker
2: smelter cats it, and a metal worker makes silver chains for
0: it. Yeah, the, the overlaid facade. It's just a, a put on in a show. It's made out of wood, but it has this metal worker covering it to make it look shiny. So, idol worship is just a facade. And if you read on in verse 20, it talks about nailing it so it doesn't fall over. It's a very weak, shallow facade. How about uh, Isaiah 41, verse seven? What does that tell about the pitifulness of idol worship?
2: Again, they've got a metal worker making me, it again. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, God exists from eternity. He says, "From everlasting to everlasting, I am God." But an idol has to be made; it's a created thing, and that, that sinners make it. That's just a pitiful thing that we would make, have to create our God.
1: And then they got to nail it down, or else so it'll
0: topple. Yeah. Once again, it so shows the base. the feebleness yeah. of idols that you must nail it over so it doesn't fall down. Okay. So far, we have idols are a facade. They're made out of wood that can rot. They need support so they don't fall over. Someone has to make it and they have to be careful so it's sturdy. Jump forward now to Isaiah forty-one twenty-one. This is the third time idols are mentioned. What makes idol worship pitiful according to Isaiah forty-one twenty-one to 24? And that's great. As we get further along, we can kind of draw back and say, how many times was this mentioned every time something gets added? God's not simply repeating himself, but he's making a point.
2: do bad things either. They can't do anything
0: good or bad. Yeah, that's the section, if you recall, that section where he says, do anything at all, whether good or bad, just do something. So idols cannot, and that's in the context of predicting the future, idols can't tell you anything. They can do nothing. So they're impotent is kind of the the focus of that section. Um, They can't announce the future or do anything. And then we get to 44 verses 9 to 20. That's a longer section. You can find lots of things there either repeated or added about the pitifulness of idol worship. What do we see there about idols? They are ignorant
2: to their own shame. Those who would speak up for the idols are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame.
0: Yeah. So here we have, before it was they're impotent, they can't do anything or predict. Here they're, they're without knowledge. They're just dumb. They, they don't know they don't have any insight. God is omniscient. God knows all things, and he plans because of his working, his foreknowledge, and his wisdom. But idols know, know nothing, and they see nothing. They're just blind. Uh, you also see, once again, it repeats. You know they're, they're made of wood, and they're a fraud, because the same wood that uses the fire that heats you is what you're using to warm yourself, and it's made to cook your dinner and make an idol. This is almost some
1: of this that you can find in Romans chapter 1.
0: Okay, yeah, Paul does echo these thoughts in Romans 1 regarding the the idols people turn to. And then we get to today's reading, so we get one more, or actually a couple new things that were added to idols today. In chapter 46, so far up to verse 8, what things have we seen now that God has added to the pitifulness of idol worship just to recap, we've discussed so far, they're a facade out of rotting wood that needs support. They have to be created and fastened. They can't predict or know any future or do anything at all. They're blind and they don't know anything. What does he add today? And we saw today they're unable to rescue or save. In fact, what do we need to do? We need to save and carry them. Idols need you. Not that you need idols. Idols need you to support them. Uh, They're a burden, right? We have to bow down to them, and we have to carry them. And as we just read in the previous verse, they come at a price. Uh, They're mute. They cannot save, but we're willing to dish out money for them. Just all around, God keeps emphasizing for us how pitiful idolatry is when you look at it and examine it from every angle. In contrast to idols, God invites his people to remember how he carries them. And we can look at everything in these lists and how God contrasts. God's not a mere facade. Through and through, he is the Holy One. Uh, He doesn't need support. He's not created. He can predict the future. He knows what is to come. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And he carries his people. He doesn't burden them. Yeah. Other thoughts up to verse 8. Maybe we'll One more point, and then we can stop before we review the section. We'll read verses 8 to 13 now Isaiah 46 8 to 13. Remember this, keep it in mind, take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, My purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far-off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are now far from my righteousness. I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion my splendor to Israel. So there have been several references so far of God's ability to predict the future. Here God specifically addresses the unbelieving portion of Israel. Notice how he talks to them, right? You stubborn-hearted, you are far away from my righteousness, he says to them. Um, Keep it in mind, you rebels. So he's he's addressing obstinate Israel in this section. Though he says, Listen and remember the unbelieving heart still denies he can predict the future. And here he rehashes, he spoke of Cyrus as the man who will do his purpose so that those rebellious hearts might hear it. What has God told us in his word is yet to come, which unbelievers still reject? Judgment. Judgment Day. So we, we can recite the Apostles' Creed. And we, can, we can say everything that we confess, I believe, I believe, has been accomplished. I believe all the the works of Christ, his humiliation, his exaltation. But then we get to one more thing is yet to come. And he will come, will come, to judge the living and the dead. So unbelievers still reject that, right? Do you know anybody that's outside the Christian faith that speaks of or puts in the forefront of their mind that there's going to be a judgment day?
1: Well, if you don't think about it, what happens? That's
0: their logic. The furthest people want to look is how long they think they'll be healthy living and that's as far as they want to examine.
1: Remember the old saying, he who dies with most toys wins? be <laughs> further from the
0: truth. And then, you know, some people think that at death, you're done, right? You've escaped. Your body just turns back to the particles from which it came as stardust. But they reject the idea that your body will be raised on judgment day and you'll be held accountable before God for every act and that he will punish the sinner on Judgment Day. So that, that's rejected either way, hand in hand, with either I'm going to die or there won't be a judgment. So God once again speaks of Cyrus. He calls him, a, kind of interesting, isn't it, the bird of prey? Kind of a negative connotation that Cyrus is a tool for destruction or a tool to attack. He's a bird of prey from the east. He will summon to fulfill his purposes. But he also predicted the coming of the Christ. Look at that that last verse. My salvation, or my righteousness, I am bringing near. It is not far away. My salvation, I will grant salvation to Zion. So unbelievers both deny the judgment, but they also deny that God brought righteousness near through Christ and his son. And he's the same one who will come to judge. It's not far away.
1: Pastor, yeah. The title from starting at eight to the end of the chapter. Yeah, the title of this in my Bible is the purpose for Cyrus.
0: Okay, so your Bible has a heading there, and the heading says the purpose for Cyrus. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So Cyrus's purpose—he's a bird of prey to fulfill God's purpose, because God said so. Cyrus is going—he's of course going to be the one who declares. The Babylonian captives get to go free. That's God's purpose. Both um, to show God, to show His people that He's in charge of history, but also that He's a God of mercy and that He has a plan for the remnant. Yeah. Which Bible is that, The Jewish Bible. <laughs> of course. It's fun to, to get those comparisons. Yeah, you've got to remember that the headings, those are not inspired, so the way that your Bible has headings can be a helpful guide to see what each section is about. But sometimes, uh, certain translations can be really helpful in the way that they explain what the the content of that section is. Yeah.
2: Cyrus explains why he's doing
0: this. We actually have records of the the Persian kingdom from this time. Because it it lasted in such a short window in history, um, it was actually preserved very well for us. So we can see some of these records of what Cyrus recorded about his events sorry what was your question again well
2: did, was it ever explained or anything saying why Cyrus was doing this oh yeah so Cyrus
0: that? Cyrus motives we have in Isaiah you know basically God says Cyrus is going to do this without a price and that he didn't demand Israel pay him back so it wasn't like Cyrus said okay Israel you go back to your land and you can pay me tribute he's just kind of like go back worship your God and You know, give give him a good word for me. So Cyrus presented it as if he was the benefactor of these people who had been so long crushed by the Babylonians. And that played in favor, this is what people speculate too, that played in favor of him politically, that people saw him as uh, an acceptable ruler of the empire because he's going to restore us back to our, our original worship and everything. So in a way, it kind of subdued the people by quelling their rebellious, oh, we can't be under them. And so they were more willing to be lorded over by the Persian king. Cyrus speaks of it when we look at the ancient records, um, that he does this so that, you know, they might serve him and so they might know he's good. So it's kind of a political ploy. In the same way that, like, maybe a ruler today might give all their citizens everything they ask for. Because what's going to happen then? Oh, you're great. We want you to be our, our next president or whatever. Because You're going to give us everything our hearts desire. <laughs> so nothing new when politicians play to the, the wants of their people. But Cyrus um, was basically doing a something that was unique at this time that hadn't really been done. So that's what makes this prophecy all the more amazing, too. Uh, you didn't see many empires being conducted this way where they they wanted their conquered lands to feel like I'm on your side, guys. And Cyrus kind of did that a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, throughout the Old Testament, but, you know,
1: during the reign of, like, Solomon and, uh, and everybody, pre, you know, all the good kings, David. So there was the fear of not just the fear of God, but a fear of the Israelites because people knew that the Jewish nation was being protected by God. And, it, and you know, it instilled fear in them. So I can see why Cyrus would say, you know, in the past, everybody feared Israel because they knew God was on their side. So.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting take because we did have, especially when they first came out of Egypt, nations fearing Israel. By this point, however, there's no evidence Cyrus acted out of um, any compulsion or fear of the God of Israel. Because remember, the God of Israel had been conquered by the no, people he conquered. but
1: by by being so nice to the likes it kind of makes him an ally now so if you're right. going to fear Israel he'll fear me too or verse
0: five, so whatever. yeah there's evidence of that too he saw these other deities as sub-deities to his God and that if his God you know won these ally gods over that he'd be more powerful in some way it, it was a lot with polytheism so in what respect he respected the Lord or regarded him as a a player on the world stage, it seems he didn't regard him as much. Why don't we uh, close here, since we're at our time. Thanks for going through this section. We're um, in the middle of a section of three chapters that kind of are now going against those who are against the Lord. This, This obviously, you know, the idols of Babylon, they're against the Lord. Next is going to be really harsh, the next chapter against the Babylonians themselves. And then next, when we get to chapter 48, will be the rebellious people of Israel. So we're in this section right now where God's going to close this portion of Isaiah's prophecy by speaking judgment against those who worked against him, starting with the gods of Babylon, then the Babylonians, then the rebellious Israelites. But it's going to shift. The whole study is really going to shift, starting at chapter 49 as we go forward. So we're in the middle of a section of judgment against his enemies but still at the same time always speaking of a rescue of the remnant and his plan to save his people let's close with the prayer regarding what we looked at lord we thank you that even though the false gods and idols of this world would seek to burden us and to put a heavy load on us even the false teachers within your church would have us carry a heavy load but you have told us that you are god who is so rich in mercy you you take the sinner and you carry them. From our birth, you have carried us in your mercy. You've continued to carry us as you brought us the gospel and kept us in that faith. And you promise you will carry us until you carry us to be at your side in our eternal home. Help us to trust whatever happens on the world stage uh, with warring nations or in our personal life and as we face crisis, that you will sustain and strengthen us in your mercy. According to your plan in Christ, do as you've promised. Amen.